This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Is free will an illusion, the metaphysics and psychology of choice? Halfway up Mount Purgatory, Dante and Virgil find themselves in the ring of sloth, where souls are purged of a defect of habitual inaction. By their own failure to act, these poor saved sinners had made themselves unable to be rightly moved by God's love. This prompts Dante to ask Virgil to explain the relationship between human freedom and the motive force of divine love. So the beginning of the selection from Dante. For if love's offered from outside of us, Dante asks, and if the soul is moved by love alone, how then can it be meritorious should we go right or wrong? Dante wants to understand how, if God's love has power to move us, which is an overarching theme not only of Purgatorio 18, but of the whole divine comedy, in what sense can we be responsible for our own actions, subject to praise or blame, depending on whether they are good or bad? Virgil indicates a qualified willingness to answer Dante's question. I'll tell you everything that reason sees. Beyond that... Wait for Beatrice still, for faith must do the work. In other words, Virgil, the pagan, can provide the philosophical perspective of reason, but certain further questions may have to wait for the saint, Beatrice, to provide the fuller perspective of Christian faith. Virgil continues, first explaining a basic orientation of the will implanted in us by nature. Every substantial form, distinct from matter yet united with it, contains within itself its proper power, which, till it's moved, remains unfelt, unseen, demonstrable only in its effect, as a plant's life is manifest in green. The general point Virgil makes is that all creatures, not only human beings, are endowed with certain powers by whatever principle, here called the substantial form, makes them to be the kind of thing that they are. Our science is maybe more advanced, but with all the new details that we could fill in about chlorophyll and light waves, etc., we can still say that the visible green of the plant manifests the otherwise invisible intrinsic organic life that animates the plant. And even that we might not know of the plant's intrinsic organic life, its actual animation or vitality, except by such manifestations as that green in its healthy leaf or stalk. This general principle Virgil then applies to the special case of human beings. In the same manner, he says, how the intellect receives the roots of knowing no man sees, nor its prime love of things desirable. These dwell in you as instinct in the bees for making honey, and this principal volition catches neither blame nor praise. So according to Virgil, the basic orientation of the will, its prime love of things desirable, is implanted in us. We have no more power over 
desiring the desirable than brute animals have over their instinct. And so, like a predator hunting prey, this cannot be a source of praise or blame. But, Virgil continues, this alone does not determine our choices. You have an inborn power, your reason, meant to gather every will to that first will, advising at the threshold of assent. This is the principle whereby a man takes merit in a good or evil love, gathering fruit and picking out the brand. As rational beings, in other words, we make judgments about what particular actions to take in fulfillment of the will's more instinctual orientation. The emphasis here is that this is a manifestation of reason, which brings things into order, gathers them up to the point where will can then be exercised to choose them, the threshold of assent. The impression that this is a matter of reason more than will is further reinforced by Virgil immediately explaining that it is the work of moral philosophy to elaborate on this power. Those men whose reasoning plumbed the depths of wisdom remarked upon this inborn liberty, bequeathing moral science to the world. The moral science handed down by philosophers, he has in mind especially Aristotle, is based on and helps us to understand this inborn liberty by which actions are freely chosen. Concluding his lesson then, Virgil reiterates that the will is necessarily oriented in a certain direction, but that some power to chart the course is in us. And he warns again that insofar as this power is considered free will, it may need the insight of faith rather than philosophy to fully expound. So, he says, let's concede that by necessity rise all your loves that kindle into flame. Still, you retain the power to rein them in. For Beatrice, this noble power's name is the free will. Remember it, be sure, for she may wish to speak about the same. I take this whole passage from the heart of Dante's Divine Comedy to be an excellent summary of St. Thomas Aquinas's understanding of free will, particularly in putting forth three main theses. First, that the will's general orientation to the good is necessitated by God. Second, that freedom is a matter of judging how to fulfill that general orientation through particular choices. Third, that this judging depends on an exercise of reason. I set as a goal for my talk then to help explain these ideas and their significance. But my path will not be through exegesis of Thomistic texts. There are very many about free will. For it also strikes me immediately that a new reader of the Purgatorio could get the impression that Dante is not here actually addressing our philosophical problem of free will at all. After all, Dante not only assumes that human actions are somehow necessitated by God, but he says that it is Beatrice the saint, not the moral philosophers, who can address free will. Moreover, Dante seems to have Virgil, in his role as philosopher, willing to address the work of reason in judging actions, 
but deferring to the authority of faith for the proper topic of free will as a cause of action. It is thus reasonable to wonder whether this passage is relevant to the problem of free will after all. So to fulfill my goal, I need to clarify how Dante is here addressing free will and doing so in a way that can address even modern understandings of the problem of free will, including those that insist we need to reject the notion of free will on philosophical grounds. With these ends in sight, let me chart a path. First, I want to unsettle the notion that there is such a thing as the problem of free will, a problem so difficult that it forces us to ask, is free will an illusion? I suggest instead that the problem of free will itself is the illusion. Of course, I allow that free will is a contentious issue, but a philosophical topic may be contentious because there is a clear, precise question with distinct, apparently reasonable, but incompatible available answers. Or it may be contentious because there is only a vague and imprecise question, or perhaps a confused set of related and intertwined questions, which ought to be clarified and disentangled before one even dares to evaluate answers. I believe free will is of the latter sort of contentious topic. In fact, I think we should use scare quotes when we talk about the question or the problem of free will. There are, in fact, various kinds of questions that have been asked historically about the will and its freedom, and different sets of questions that make sense against different sets of assumptions. In the first main part of this talk, then, I will try to characterize what I think is the paradigmatic modern question of free will, and explore how this question has its roots in a certain conception of nature and causality. Celebrity atheist Sam Harris has argued that the idea of free will is simply impossible to map onto reality, and I will allow that, in a certain sense, he is right. For Harris, and others who share his conception of reality, it is impossible to conceive of free will, except as an illusion, a phenomenological fiction. The modern conception of causality is simplest to grasp in Harris's materialist version, although we will see that it is not limited to his extreme materialist perspective so much as it is indebted to a particular conception, both of reason and of the operations of the cosmos, conceptions which actually preclude the asking of the question that Dante asked Virgil about God's love moving our actions, the question which elicited Virgil's Thomistic Aristotelian response. So in the latter part of this talk, I will explore an alternative conception, a classical conception, in which a very different set of questions about free will were asked and answered. It is not that the thesis that free will is an illusion would not or did not occur in the classical framework. It was, in fact, historically entertained. But that even when that thesis was entertained, it answered a different kind of question and did so with less apparent attractiveness than when it is propounded within a modern conceptual framework. And we will see that the modern framework hides from us a set of questions, richer, more diverse, and I would argue more practical, that arise within the classical framework. So, to the modern problem or problems of free will. Here is some more context for Sam Harris's assertion that it is impossible to conceive of free will. This is from chapter one of his book on free will. The idea that we are as conscious beings, deeply responsible for the character of our mental lives and subsequent behavior, is simply impossible to map onto reality. Consider that it would, what it would take to actually have free will, 
says Harris. You would need to be aware of all the factors that determine your thoughts and actions, and you would need to have complete control over those factors. But there is a paradox here that vitiates the very notion of freedom. For what would influence the influences? More influences? None of these adventitious mental states are the real you. You are not the controlling, you are not controlling the storm. You are lost in it. You are the storm. So why, according to Harris, is free will impossible to map onto reality? For him, it seems, free will would imply that we would absolutely and wholly control our thoughts and actions, not just enough to nudge them in one direction or another, like a driver steering a car, but to be entirely responsible for them from beginning to end, as if to control the car one would have to have built it, conjured the fuel, and generated the road conditions. How far back must one go? Must one also have made the laws of physics? It is obvious that we have no such total comprehensive control over our cars or over our other actions, which is why Harris thinks free will is impossible. But why would one think that free will requires such total control? It is an odd assumption to make, but the key to Harris's perspective seems to be in his summary of philosophical anthropology. You are the storm. That is, you are a collection of swirling physical particles with nothing in control, but perhaps generating the illusion of integrity and coherence, like a tornado. Harris's perspective, in other words, is reductionist and materialistic because he assumes that physical science offers a full account of what is real. If basic physical laws govern the only things that are really real, then everything else not explained in terms of those physical laws can be explained away as a fiction, an illusion, a mere appearance. Although, an appearance to whom, one is tempted to ask. For Harris, the question of free will is essentially, is free will compatible with what we know by way of physical science? I accept this as the real, not always articulated question behind the more conspicuous modern question of whether we have free will. But to ask whether free will is compatible with what we know through physical science depends on a further question. What do we really know about the world through physical science? And this question itself can actually be taken in two ways. First, it could mean what are the latest findings in physical science? In other words, what specific accounts do the physical sciences offer about certain behaviors of physical bodies in the physical world? Here, obviously, much depends on the state of the physical sciences at a given time, and this is often the kind of attention on which the question of free will seems to hinge. But we also have to ask a second version of the question. What do we know about the world through physical science? A more general philosophical question, in other words, how much in principle does physical science capture about the nature of things in the physical world? In other words, at whatever state of progress we find particular physical sciences, how should we understand the relationship between physical science and a full account of our environment and especially of other human beings and of ourselves, of human nature, of its origins, activities, and ends? Materialists will often simply assume an answer to this second question or else deny that it even is a question and so they won't raise it. Materialism simply takes it for granted that reality is purely physical and that our only access to it is physical science. And so physical science in principle, if not yet in fact, is alone what can offer an account of the natures of things, including human things. But of course, materialists ask the first version of the question, 
namely what is physical science currently telling us about reality. And so we get into conversations about Newtonian physics or quantum mechanics or neuroscience or artificial intelligence. In this context, the question, is free will compatible with physical science, leads to discussion of whether given findings of one or another scientific specialty supply a context or space for imagining a free act, that is, an act that cannot be accounted for or determined by other scientific specialties in terms of other physical causes. So from a materialist perspective, we get discussion about whether freedom could be an uncaused or random gap provided by, say, quantum indeterminacy, or an emergent property like software running on hardware, or we see inquiries about whether freedom could be located in a particular part of the brain, say the pineal gland or the anterior cingulate cortex or whatever, or in a particular pattern or kind of neuron activity like the Bereitschaftspotential, the unconscious readiness potential in neuronal activity that takes place right before a decision. You can read scientific articles about all of these things. These are interesting discussions and we should be happy for the progress of science that allows them to even be formulated. But to someone who actually cares about free will, they might sound like arguments between blind people over whether the line between blue and purple should start at wavelength 449 or 550 nanometers. In other words, describing some material conditions for the exercise of free will does not seem to make the exercise of free will itself at all recognizable as the phenomenon those conditions are supposed to describe. What we all really want to know is what insight, if any, physical science can provide on the human experience, which includes colors and choices and not simply wavelengths and neurons. Put another way, and very personally, where are you in this supposedly scientific analysis? Harris is bravely frank in his reductionist materialism. You aren't anywhere. You are a swirling collection of particles, a storm. Harris's vision is unapologetically, but also impossibly, impersonal. He is not explaining free will, he is explaining it away. On his account, free will is literally inconceivable. Although, again, one is tempted to ask, inconceivable by whom? Not every denial of free will is quite so cold. Indeed, historically, there have been quite a range of metaphors for human beings in a deterministic world, and the storm is on the bleaker side of things. Slightly more intriguing, for instance, is the idea that you are a piece of hardware running some software, a collection of spinning electrons, physical but conceived in a different mode, somewhat less reductionist. This even has a version of hope for immortality, if only we could upload our consciousness software into some other medium, as dreamed of by the likes of Elon Musk or Ray Kurzweil. There are other famous metaphors for human beings imagined without free will. Schopenhauer, for instance, compared us to something a little more recognizable, allowing us at least the bodily integrity of a coordinated thing, something coherent and maybe even subject to drama, and the appearance of narrative purpose, here he is in 1818 with a more mechanistic metaphor of human agency. The human race, he says, presents itself as puppets that are set in motion by an internal clockwork. I have said that those puppets are not pulled from outside, but that each of them bears in itself the clockwork from which its movements result. This is the will to live manifesting itself in an untiring mechanism as an irrational impulse which does not have its sufficient ground or reason in the external world. 
Puppets don't act on their own, of course. They are manipulated. And where there is manipulation, there is a manipulator. For Schopenhauer, the human person is not so much an agent as the receiver of a kind of general life force agency, the will to live, which permeates the whole universe. So we are driven from the inside by impersonal forces, like an automaton. But there is in this picture a god of sorts, an internal, impersonal, and irrational will, the source of our life and motion for which we cannot take credit. Hence, individual human beings are not really free. We are puppets, puppets of a blind puppet master. It is possible to deny free will and yet ascend the great chain of being even higher. Couldn't we imagine that we are not collections of particles, the storm, or complex contraptions like automata or plants, but some kind of self-aware, though deceived and pathetic beast? What if we are not puppets on the end of a string, but dogs on the end of a leash? This is the kind of metaphor that Holbach used in 1772 to describe how we can experience free will without actually being free. But, you will say, I feel free. This is Holbach. This is an illusion that may be compared to that of the fly in the fable who, lighting upon the pole of a heavy carriage, applauded himself for directing its course. Man who thinks himself free is a fly who imagines he has power to move the universe while he is himself unknowingly carried along by it. Holbach saw that the denial of free will did not have to follow a mechanistic view of human nature. We could still be animals with inclinations, dispositions, even relationships. And the lack of freedom does not, for Holbach, deprive us of the possibility of merit. Some beasts and machine parts contribute more to the world and others detract and fail. Animals don't have free will, but they can still be admired by other animals. Even mechanistic parts can have merit. Here he is again. What is merit in man? It is a manner of acting which renders him estimable in the eyes of fellow beings. What is virtue? It is a disposition which inclines us to do good to others. What can there be contemptible in machines or automatons capable of producing effects so desirable? Marcus Aurelius was useful to the vast Roman Empire. By what right would a machine despise a machine whose springs facilitate its action? Good men are springs, he says, which second society in its tendency to happiness, and the wicked are ill-formed springs, which disturb the order, progress, and harmony of society. If for its own utility, society cherishes and rewards the good, it also harasses and destroys the wicked as useless or hurtful. So, while the denial of free will is often associated with atheist materialism and mechanistic reductionism, as in the example of Sam Harris, historically the denial of free will is compatible with a more organic understanding of the physical world, and even with a vision of a certain type of God, God that is understood as a puppet master, an impersonal force. Indeed, many philosophers most concerned with the will Friedrich Nietzsche, of course, or the more obscure and even more pessimistic Philip Mainlander, make will a primal force of the universe. Human beings as individual agents are not really free, but at the mercy of this more fundamental and irrational force. We find will capitalized, of course, not as the proper name of a divine person, but as the reification of a Germanic abstraction. Thus, while the denial of free will is also often associated with not taking seriously the possibility of moral responsibility, many thinkers who deny free will will find a way to save the phenomenon of moral seriousness. 
Schopenhauer is the one who bequeathed philosophy with the phrase, the meaning of life. We are not free, but we feel free, and awareness of this can somehow liberate us from certain pains and anxieties or help us to accept our fate. Although details vary, the idea that there is ethical wisdom in making peace with our lack of freedom is a perspective that goes back through Spinoza to the ancient atomists. Even Sam Harris is eager to reassure us how humane, how spiritually liberating it is to see through the free will illusion and come to terms with our lack of agency. It is only a minor modification within this account to carve out some space for activity which is not entirely determined, the indifferent or the random. Whether in the modern version of quantum indeterminacy or in the ancient Epicurean version of a particle swerving unpredictably from its natural path, these gaps in an otherwise determined causal chain do not, in fact, supply freedom in the sense of an agent's self-determination. They simply allow for vacant interruptions of predictable causality. They create space for the illusion of freedom. I'm deliberately not going into the specific details because I want to characterize the general conceptual framework within which it comes to make sense to say that free will is an illusion. What makes free will inconceivable, which is to say incompatible with an understanding of the physical world, is a certain conception of what can count as a cause. In this understanding, something either doesn't have a cause at all, it is indifferent or random, or it is entirely caused by something else, determined, or it is self-moving or self-caused. The idea that an action has no cause doesn't make sense. That it causes itself might make it free, but seems impossible. And that it is caused by something else implies that it is not free. It is this framework in which it seems that there is a conflict between determinism and freedom which can only be resolved in favor of determinism. But let us think further about this word, determine. Determination simply means specifying the direction something will go, ordering it to its end. To say that something has free will is to say that it determines its own actions rather than having them determined by something outside of or prior to itself. What we call determinism might better be called heterodeterminism, actions determined by something other than the acting agent. What this perspective imagines unsuccessfully as freedom is either autodeterminism, actions determined entirely by the acting agent, or indeterminism, actions indifferent, not determined or specified by anything at all. But autodeterminism seems to violate a basic principle of causality shared by all scientists from Aristotle to Sam Harris, and that, that, that principle being that things don't cause themselves. And indeterminism is not freedom, it is indifference or chance. Incidentally, this terminology I've been using, hetero and autodeterminism, is not something that I take from other philosophers. I haven't seen other philosophers use it, but I discovered a precedent for it in modern psychology. It has been applied in developmental disability research, and all of this suggests to me that whatever resources philosophers may bring to the table, on free will we might have some things to learn from other disciplines that grapple with actually helping human beings develop effective agency. If there is such a thing as free will, we need another kind of determining. To take my mundane example of driving the car, is my car's movement wholly determined by me, 
Certainly not. I'm steering, but its power is coming from an engine that I merely nudge and manipulate, and the car itself is dependent on all sorts of prior causes. Is the car's movement wholly determined by something other than me? No. I'm driving it. Recall Halbach's metaphor of the unfree self, the fly, carried along by the carriage. What if we are not like the passive fly, but more like the horse, actually pulling the carriage? Or better yet, what if we are more like the carriage driver, directing the carriage, even if its motive force comes from the horse? Perhaps the oldest metaphor for free will, even before it was called free will, is the chariot driver, as told in Plato's Phaedrus. Reason, represented by a human being, seeks to rein in and direct passionate motive forces in the form of two-winged horses. And Dante, in the passage I cited, uses the metaphor, you retain the power to rein them in. We need a way to describe something that is crucially involved in shaping, guiding, or directing actions without exhausting responsibility for those actions. And if this is possible, we also need a way to characterize different ways in which something can be crucially involved in a cooperative causal activity. This would be something between pure hetero or other determinism and pure auto or self-determinism. It would have to acknowledge that a chain of causes must lead back ultimately to some first original cause, to a god who is the only conceivable auto-determinate thing. For lack of a better term, what I am suggesting, following a more elegant example set by John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor, is the concept of participated theo-determinism, shared determinism with God. Let me explain what I mean. It would be fair to say that any natural object has some share in causing its actions. Fire doesn't make itself, but once it is fire, it is the fire that burns. Stones don't make themselves, but once they exist, it is the stone that has mass, and its mass can be a source of action, falling, pressing, or even staying put by inertia. Living things, too, clearly have a share in their own causality. A plant is not responsible for having generated itself, but once it exists, it has certain functions of growth and nourishment and protection that are activated from its very nature as the kind of plant that it is. Ascending the chain of being, animals do not only have a share in exercising their causal powers. They have a certain mode of awareness of that share. They have cognition. The hungry lion sees the gazelle and stalks it and experiences hunger until sated. None of this so far describes free action. Plants don't have free will. Animals operate by instinct. But we are at least describing things that are in some way acting under their own power. They are not happenstance particle storms or passively dancing puppets. And to the extent that they are not entirely under their own power, they are exercising power that can be traced back to an original first cause. So in acting, these agents are cooperating with and participating in an original activity from what created them, ultimately from God. What is it that we human beings add on top of a share in their own causality and an animal awareness of the same? We have an additional mode of cognition or awareness by which we acquire a further level of personal responsibility for our actions. We deliberate and decide on particular courses of action in light of how they can be ordered to ends beyond our sense, imagination, or memory. The lion hunts by instinct to fill her belly. The farmer plants his field by prudence to raise food 
to feed his family, to steward the land, to leave a posterity, to give glory to God. Man is the rational animal, but notice my example of human rationality, not a scholar or puzzle solver, but a practical planner, a tiller of soil capable of judging the best means towards a perceived concrete goal and of ordering immediately perceived goals towards more remote and ultimate goals. There could be no more basic human functions, nothing of which one could be more aware than the function of judging and deciding in everyday life, even as an atheist determinist decides how best to persuade people that free will is an illusion and judges what arguments and metaphors to use to make this seem compelling. Of course, what is excluded from all the common modern metaphors of determinism is not only a will as some mysterious invisible motive force, but any recognition of rationality or intellectual awareness as a kind of responsible providence over the activity of a creature. Once we do attend to human rationality as a power of providence that sets us apart from other animals, it is an almost immediate and intuitive step to treat this power as a reflection of and participation in a divine providence over all of creation. Where did our capacity come from, if not from an original perfect form of this capacity, who endowed us with a share of the original? We might call this insight the imago dei, man made in the image of God, but it is not a specifically biblical or religious idea. That rationality as a mysterious miraculous gift, a spark of this divinity that sets us apart from the rest of physical creation, was acknowledged also by pagan philosophers. Plato and Aristotle and Stoic thinkers regarded the intellect, reason, logos, as something divine in us. It is not by accident that every determinist metaphor for the human being is of something non-rational. In modern materialistic or deterministic conceptions of reality, it is not so much God that is missing, but a certain conception of what human beings are that may make it possible to even conceive of God as a provident agent knowing and willing his creation. Likewise, this conception of what, or rather who, God is, in turn, makes it easier to conceive of human beings, not by some reductionist metaphor with lesser physical things, but as very special animals participating in a higher spiritual reality. So now, to consider more directly classical questions of free will. All this being said, God's existence and activity does not necessarily make it easier to understand or even to believe in free will, especially when combined with human rationality. If the modern question of free will is most often the question of whether free will is compatible with a deterministic conception of physical science, the more classical questions of free will are raised by the apparent conflict between free will and God's divine providence. The relationship between human freedom and divine power raised questions both for Christian faith and for philosophical or natural theology, with Christian faith most often intensifying questions already asked and addressed within the classical philosophical framework. St. Augustine will provide us a powerful example. His work on free choice of the will asks in turn three main questions, which I will summarize here with his answers. First, where does evil come from? His answer, evil can't come from God, so it must be caused by a free but disordered created will. Second, is free will good? His answer, 
As the source of evil, it cannot be from God, but insofar as it is both real and that part of creation by which we can do good, of course it is good. Third, is free will compatible with divine foreknowledge? His answer, yes. God's mode of existence is such that he can know things before they happen without causing them. Foreknowledge is a much easier problem to handle than the challenge of divine providence or divine causality. Augustine raises these questions as a Christian, but they are not specifically Christian problems, and his answers depend on philosophical, especially Neoplatonic, principles. Later in his career, arguing with Pelagius, Augustine is pressed to address harder and more specifically Christian problems of predestination and grace, but as he insists, even then his responses to doctrinal theological questions uphold the central points of, his, of the earlier philosophical framework from his work on free will. And here is a passage from Augustine. It is the will through which we sin or live rightly. Unless the will is freed by grace, by the grace of God, from the bondage through which it has become a slave to sin, and unless it obtains aid in conquering its vices, mortal men cannot live rightly and piously. If this divine gift of freedom had not preceded grace, then it would have been given according to the merits of the will, not through grace, which is freely given. So Augustine holds fast to the principle that all goods, greater and lesser, come from God, and, he, and, and since free will is an intermediate good, which can be used for good or evil, if it is used for good, that good use, which is a greater good, is only due to God by grace. For Augustine, the relevant notion of causality is not a necessary and sufficient prior material condition, productive of an effect, but the source of actuality, the power that communicates being. The difference with the modern notion of cause means that, among other things, Augustine's Neoplatonic framework allows for distinct but cooperating proximate and ultimate causes. A physical event cannot be ultimately explained by reference to a chronologically prior physical event. Any event must be explained by reference to its conditions of actualization. The conditions of the being of a good human act include both the human will as the genuine immediate proximate cause and the divine will, which as the source of all good must be the remote ultimate cause of the being of the goodness of the act. If you doubt that this is a philosophical idea rather than a specific, specifically Christian mystery of faith, consider what Aristotle himself says in chapter 2 of book 8 of his Eudaimonian Ethics, what he calls the starting point of change in the soul. It is now evident, he says, as it is a god that moves in the whole universe, so it is in the soul. For in a sense, the divine element in us moves everything. But the starting point of reason is not reason, but something superior. What then could be superior to knowledge and intelligence, but a god? So even crediting the soul as a source of movement, Aristotle held that the soul's movement itself has a source, and insofar as its movement is rational, its source must be rational or super-rational, the first intelligence that is God. For Aristotle, this theological insight is part of practical philosophy, the moral science. For Augustine, and then for Aquinas, and for Dante, it becomes central to understanding the arc of salvation history as the drama of our relationship to grace.
From our brief glimpse of Augustine and briefer glimpse of Aristotle, we see that the classical conception of causes leads to quite a variety of questions about free will. Not simply is free will compatible with divine providence, but is God free? Are some people more free than others? What causes us to abuse or misdirect our freedom? How does our freedom differ in different stages of the biblical story of the human condition? And many others. This is the framework inherited by Aquinas and articulated in terms of distinctions from Aristotle's works on the soul and on ethics. I have given in this talk almost none of Aquinas's actual technical terminology about freedom and choice and will. I have not explained the parts of prudence or the structure of the human act or the relationship of intellect and will. I have not discussed synderesis or conscience or the virtue of prudence or deliberation. I have tried to instead to sketch the kind of general framework in which these concepts and distinctions and analyses could make sense because approached from outside of that framework, from the perspective of modern assumptions about causality and human nature, Aquinas's specific attention to the will and its freedom is not only unpersuasive, it is unintelligible. Ideally, then, this talk can serve as a kind of preface to properly scholarly articulations on Aquinas on free will. Let me mention here just a few examples. David Gallagher, in two papers, has drawn valuable attention to the relation of reason and will in Aquinas. He has a paper on the will as rational appetite and another on choice and judgment. Gallagher helps explain how, for Aquinas, Human freedom only makes sense as a particular kind of operation made possible by the intellect. A friendly critique of Gallagher's work was provided by Father Lawrence Dewan in a paper on the causes of free choice. Father Dewan finds it necessary to supplement Gallagher's treatment of freedom with attention to the activity of deliberation and to the ultimate causal role of God in moving the will. And another scholar, Stephen Wang, has helpfully responded to Gallagher's work by drawing attention to the limits of reason's role and the importance of the will in actualizing not only the act, but the agent. Wang argues that we can speak of freedom as a means of cooperating with God, a mode of self-creation. I mention these works to point interested students in the direction of valuable recent scholarship but also to highlight that what the best scholars are arguing about are precisely the issues that Virgil described to Dante on Mount Purgatory. The role of reason, working with a will drawn to God in arriving at the moment of choice, the threshold of assent. Authentic moral science, articulating the classical understanding of free will, is alive and well. So I have argued that the modern problem of free will makes certain assumptions about causality. I have tried to show that the history of the problem of free will reveals an alternative conception of causality, which not only raises richer, more interesting philosophical problems, but also makes better sense of the human experience and makes great literature more accessible as well. So once one is aware of the alternative classical conception, why would one choose to reject it? and accept the modern one. Is free will an illusion? The only thing that would constrain one to answer yes is a conception of reality according to which causality is never shared or participated in, 
and according to which reasoning is not a distinct kind of power with its own causal force irreducible to mechanical processes. On this conception of reality, the only imaginable metaphors for human agency diminish us to amoral animals, passive puppets, or swirling storms. God, if there is any such thing, may, on this conception, be an all-pervasive will or an original vital force, but not a prudent governor, wisely provident over all of creation. Freedom of will depends on intelligibility of action. When action is no longer intelligible as such, as in these mechanistic conceptions of reality, there is indeed no place for free will, for self-determined agency, for rational choice only for randomness, indeterminacy, the mere illusion of freedom. And yet the illusion remains. And now I will ask again, an illusion for whom? Why are those who insist there is no such thing as free will so eager to tell us that it is an illusion, to argue for that, to get us to change our minds? Why should we listen to them? They are no doubt telling the truth about their own limited understanding they cannot conceive of free will. But if you are not so limited, once you find, an avail find available an alternative conception of reality, according to which free will and so much else can make sense, why would you not choose that superior alternative? Indeed, insofar as the intellect apprehends truth and the will is moved by what is good, why would one not, as a free agent, feel compelled to choose it? not passively coerced by an exterior force, but drawn to it by an interior unity of thought and desire, images of divine love and wisdom leading us back to their source, as it led Dante through purgatory into the presence of God. Thank you.